0: I wanna take a moment to revisit a kind of awful part of Torah, which took place a few weeks ago. It, It doesn't take place in this week's Torah portion, but it is mentioned in this week's Torah portion. So in Parshat Shmini, a few weeks ago, we read the story of how eight days after the most important and celebrated communal building project of the ancient Israelite, people was inaugurated, Tragedy befell the community. So this massive community building project was called the Mishkan, our namesake. Um, This incredible portable worship space that God's very presence dwelled in as the people created it. And the Mishkan building project takes up more verses in the book of Exodus than anything else, including... um, Our enslavement in Egypt, our liberation from slavery in Egypt, the wandering of the desert towards Sinai, the giving of Torah at Sinai, and all of the legal and economic and social and moral laws that come in the Parsha after the Parsha with the giving of the Torah at Sinai, um, the Mishkan actually takes up more space than all of that. And when I say the Mishkan, it's like the instruction manual for how to build it. The the B'nai Mitzvah kids who get this Parsha, like their eyes glaze over you know and so did anybody have this as you know one of the mishkan parshiotas one of your nobody in this room I bet that's not true and you just figured out something else to talk about <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this becomes the focal point of the narrative because it is the focal point of the story and it is to my mind as as a community that doesn't have our own building it is amazing how a community building project You know, having a space to call your own can become a national obsession, right? And the text describes how the people literally fell on their faces when they saw Moses and Aaron emerge from the Mishkan. Aaron raises his hands and blesses the people and the people literally fall on their faces. Of course, this was a national obsession this newly liberated slave people had never known freedom before. And the first thing they were doing was building a space for God to dwell with them, that they created, that they participated in the creating of this Mishkan. This was nothing short of miraculous. I still sometimes feel that way about our Mishkan. And so in the fury and the flurry of the activity and the celebration on that eighth day, after the inauguration, something totally unexpected and devastating happens. Aaron's sons, two of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, seemingly full of passion and spontaneity and fervor, it's not really clear. They come before God and offer Esh strange fire that God had not requested. And they die immediately. And Aaron, the high priest, their father, the one who taught them everything they know, the one they looked up to and the community looked up to, Aaron, who is said to be the great peacemaker of the Jewish people, he was silent. The Yedoma Haron. Aaron was silent. And because there is generally so little dialogue in the Torah, it is actually meaningful that the Torah goes out of its way to mention that he was silent, right, to highlight that silence because it's uh, such an unusual thing that people actually talk to each other. Much of the Torah is just narrative and, to be honest, God talking to Moses. So the rabbis, our sages, want to know, why mention Aaron's silence? What was significant about it? Why was he quiet? Why didn't he cry out in protest, maybe? Why didn't he cry? So some say his silence was faithfulness accepting this awful reality as God's will. My husband went to an Orthodox day school for high school, and he says that's what he was taught in high school. Perhaps Aaron's silence was shock, like he simply couldn't believe this was happening, happening on his watch in a space that he had helped create and was overseeing the proceedings inside of, that something could go so horribly wrong, maybe. Or perhaps his silence was actually protest, you know? He's giving his commander the literal silent treatment. Maybe it was guilt, right? Not, not five minutes earlier, he had been inside offering sacrifices, and then they'd been accepted. And then his sons go and do the same thing, maybe in a slightly different way, and they die. Maybe his silence was fear, like, if he raised his voice, if he protested, maybe God, maybe his people would turn on him, call him a traitor, insufficiently loyal to the cause. Maybe he deserved what his family got. We'll never really know. But our Torah portion this week, Mot Kedoshim, is chapters later in the story. It does not come right after the story I just told you, um, and it's weeks later on the calendar. Yet it begins. The very first line of this week's Torah portion begins with this episode. The first sentence. Um, the first sentence of this week's parsha, which concerns itself with the atonement rituals on Yom Kippur, um, sexual purity, um, a lot of juicy stuff in there, um, and holiness. You know, all all kinds of holiness. Um, begins with calling to mind the death of Aaron's two sons, and I've been trying to make sense of it all week. Why begin? The section of Torah that has some of the most iconic and timeless verses, including, by the way, Ve'ahavta l'rayecha kamocha. Repeat after me, this is important. Ve'ahavta l'rayecha kamocha. You will love your neighbor like yourself this week's Torah portion. Isn't that cool? Isn't that a weird thing that it, I mean, it's a double Parsha. So technically the Parsha that that one comes in begins with you will be holy. Um, that, you know, the holiness code is what that's called, but we always read these two together. So let's go on a different journey for a moment about a similar building project and maybe see what light it can shed. So 4,000 years after the original National Jewish Building Project, the Mishkan, and 2,000 years after the Jewish people's most recent attempt at sovereignty in the land of Israel, parentheses, see holidays of Hanukkah and Tisha B'Av, to understand what happened there, the Jewish people, again, now, today, have a communal building project, a focal point of our national narrative, and for many even an obsession, which is the state of Israel, and for good reason. Through the eyes of Jewish history, the creation of the state of Israel not 75 years ago is, like the Mishkan, nothing short of a miracle, right? Not three years after the devastation of the Holocaust and the decimation and loss of two-thirds of European Jewry, the state of Israel represented rebirth, much like the Mishkan for the Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt. And like those Israelites who fell on their faces at the sight of Moses and Aaron coming out of the Mishkan, thousands of Jewish people have fallen to their knees and kissed the earth as the plane or boat or camel or their feet took them to this land. And and when they realized through tears That after generations of wandering and shame and being the butt of anti-Semitic jokes and violence the world over, of not having control of their destiny or security, here in this place, they would. And they would recreate themselves, and they would not apologize for surviving, for thriving. So that is why we celebrate Every year on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, this idea, Od Avinu Chai, our ancestors still live. Against all odds, we are still here. And that is something to celebrate. And I have to say, every time I get off the plane at Ben-Gurion, I don't actually drop down on my knees and kiss the floor. But as I'm walking down the ramp toward customs, I do kiss the arm-sized mezuzah that's outside the customs hall. It's... Mind-blowing that there is a country where when you go to customs, there's a mezuzah on the wall. (laughs) And like the ancient Mishkan, death and loss has accompanied this story from the very beginning as well. So the day before Yom HaTzmout, as many of you know, we celebrated both this past week, is Yom HaZikaron, Israel's Memorial Day, commemorating every year the loss of life of soldiers and victims of terror, um, that was incurred in the service of, or simply having coffee in, or celebrating Seder in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel. And that number totals close to 29,000 people this year, since the birth of the state, mostly soldiers um, and around 4,000 civilians. May their memories be blessings. And every year on Yom Hazikaron, Israel sounds a siren and traffic stops on the highway, And people get out of their cars and they stand up at outdoor cafes and they put down their shopping bags and they pay tribute. They're silent for a minute and create a collective moment of silence and memory. It's a much more serious day than America's barbecues and day off on our Memorial Day. Um, You sort of wonder if 75 years into American, you know, American independence, if their Memorial Day actually had a similar quality. Um, In any case, it is a moment with contending with the profound and personal sacrifice that having a state necessitates. Indeed, it seems, sacrifice is inevitable. If we love something, we must be prepared to lose for it. And then we demonstrate how much we love what we love by commemorating every year what we've lost, right? So now, in the spirit of the Ahavta Lareyecha Kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself, it's important that we understand where our neighbor's hearts are in this moment as well. Right? If we as Jews want our losses seen and affirmed, we must do the same thing for our neighbors, and in particular for our neighbors whose history and pain is inextricably interwoven into the Jewish story. Right? I remember once a couple of years ago, we were having a, you know, one of the many conversations we had, I think during the pandemic online about Israel. And and somebody said, I don't understand. Why do we have to worry about the Palestinians? Why can't we just worry about the Jewish part? And that's not a thing. (laughs) That's not possible. The lives, the daily lives of these two people's are every single day implicating one another. And so we have to talk about that too. So Palestinians also have a memorial day, um, or a parallel memorial day, called Nakba Day on May 15th. And Nakba, as you may know, means catastrophe. It's the parallel day to Yom M'ut, Independence Day. And on this day, Palestinians remember the day when the miracle of the Jewish people became their nightmare. And over 700,000 Palestinians were forced to leave their homes in what is now the state of Israel. And they become refugees, you know, in every neighboring country in the West Bank and in Gaza Strip. And 75 is not that many years ago. You know, there are still Holocaust survivors telling the story of what they saw and felt and went through. There are still Um, People who went through the Nakba, or the War of Independence, who can talk about what they saw and felt as they left their homes. Many of them still have the keys, iconically. Just as Jews looked for 2,000 years toward the land of Israel, um, these families still, three, four, five generations down, have the same dream that the Jewish people have in having a state having sovereignty, self-determination in this land. So, in Israel and Palestine, as Palestinians call this same piece of land, um, there are many narratives of how we got to where we are today, but the dominant narratives, the dominant Israeli and dominant Palestinian national narratives kind of separate our losses. And those losses are the reason to keep fighting to protect ourselves. And never let our guard down, right? Or let someone else tell us how to maintain our national identity. Because we've lost so much, we have to keep fighting, right? Is there anybody who, like, recognizes this kind of line of thinking? Of course. And. But and. I don't live there, you know? For, we're, we're making Shabbat here in Chicago, And so it might be easy to say, as people have said to me before, okay, rabbi, easy for you to wax poetic about what's happening over there. So I actually want to talk about the Israelis and Palestinians who have made that sacrifice, the same sacrifice that Aaron made. No parent knows they're going to have to make that sacrifice. But Israelis and Palestinians who have, who have lost sons and daughters, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, friends, lovers, spouses, to the reality that is life in Israel. And who do not believe, actually, that loss is inevitable, that war and violence and perpetual fighting is inevitable. They actually don't believe that. They don't believe in the us versus them narrative either way, but they would rather see in us versus them is that there are those who are willing to seek out and work for and make sacrifices for peace, and there are those who are content to continue making sacrifices to maintain the status quo. And so this Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzimut, I wanna, I want to lift up the voices of those brave and visionary people who could never be accused of being insufficiently loyal or speaking from a place of naivete or privilege or distance because they're speaking from a place of profound personal loss. And these are people who would be within their rights to turn their deep pain into revenge, into anger, but instead, in the words of the Parent Circle Family Forum, this group of over 600 Israeli and Palestinian families who have lost someone in the conflict, What they say is the best revenge we could have for those who killed our children is to make peace. The best revenge we could have for those who killed our children is to make peace. So this past weekend, Mishkan was proud to sponsor, along with 80 organizations here in Chicago, nationally in Israel, the 18th annual Joint Memorial Day Commemoration. A ceremony designed by the parent circle and Combatants for Peace, which is an organization of former militants, both Jewish and Palestinian, Jewish, Israeli, and Palestinian, who have come together to humanize one another, to share the experience of the pain of having lost someone, so that they can build bridges of empathy and compassion, and end the narrative of us versus them. It's a false narrative, and to envision and create a shared future in which there is room for all who call the land home and nobody's pushing anybody else out. So an Israeli Jewish woman named Anat Marnin stood up at the ceremony this past Monday, and she introduced herself as the sister of Yair and Pinke, who died in the Yom Kippur War of 1973. She said, My brothers will forever be 23 and 19, and I, 50 years later, I'm still their little sister. As a child, they always helped me feel safe and protected. I was 16, she said, when my world fell apart. I was speechless, dumbstruck, and I disappeared into myself. My mother somehow went on, supported me lovingly, taught and spoke publicly and relentlessly about the terrible price we paid, and implored her audiences to find a way to end the bloodshed, and now I do the same. She says, I share the memory of my brothers for the sake of my living children, as well as future generations. When I meet with Palestinian mothers, she said, I feel an immediate kinship with them of pain and grief. We share a terrible loss and a hope to end this conflict. And from the depth of our sorrow, we find the strength to work together, even when the cannons roar, to show that there is another way and in order to bring our message to both societies. See us, we say. See us, who have paid the ultimate price for this conflict. If we can come together, if we can come together and say enough, then all of you can. May you join our call, she said. There were 15,000 people that showed up, For that in person joint Memorial Day celebration or commemoration in Tel Aviv, and another 20,000 people that watched online. To listen to these brave souls share their stories and to witness the pain of the other and to stand in solidarity with one another and see that not as a threat to anyone's national identity or religion, but as a more expansive identity that transcends boundaries and includes the presence and thriving of the other in their vision of the future, of their neighbor. And this vision of shared grief translating into the desire for a different future, a different status quo, not this status quo, a new, safer future, a shared future for all, is gaining attention and support. And for good reason, I think. Having a state, or having a Mishkan for that matter, is a tactic toward achieving a goal. The goal of the state isn't the state itself, right? Think of a lot of countries in the world that in and of themselves are not inherently holy. It's what happens in that space. It's what that space makes possible. The goal of the state isn't the state, it's the dignity and safety and self-determination, the determination of one's own destiny that is possible in a state. That's, that's the goal. Would it not be incredible for a new generation of Israelis and Palestinians, not made hard by the many decades of hearing the same story, but envisioning a new story? Wouldn't it be incredible for them to envision their own dignity and safety and self-determination in a way that enhances, not detracts from, the other's? Wouldn't that be cool? Because there won't be dignity or safety or self-determination for anyone unless there is for everyone. That's the reality. And so this is what Parents Circle and what Combatants for Peace and what Standing Together, another organization that we've hosted here, and so many more people-to-people peace-building organizations are trying to make happen. One hopeful, painful, hopeful day at a time. Our Parsha begins four chapters of focusing on how to be a good person against the backdrop of the death of Aaron's children. I wonder if perhaps Aaron's silence is a question. How might I be part of creating a world where no one's children have to be sacrificed for what they love. I want to invite us to stand. And I want to bless us tonight to have the courage to listen, to be quiet and to listen to stories that aren't the story you thought you knew about something you love. I want to bless us tonight to know that you're not a traitor if you lead with love. I want to bless us tonight that, to know that in order to create peace, we have to invest in peace. And in order to create peace, we have to do what Aaron did. Listen, I want to bless us tonight to know that maintaining our own dignity and safety means investing in the dignity and safety of our neighbors. For their sake, for our sake, and for God's sake. <laughs> May it happen soon for all of us. And we can say, Amen. 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 And I want us to sing that song, that line from Parsha Kedoshim. It sounds like this. Um, mekabel alai, behold, I take upon myself, mitzvah tabore, this commandment from my creator, Ve'ahavta l'reyach ha'kamocha. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it sounds like. Hooray. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening.